You may be seated. Like this. This is high. Well, good morning. Uh, as Reverend Reed has already stated, uh, my name is Jordan Washington. Uh, I am a native to this great metropolis known as Little Rock, and in fact, uh, I grew up right up the street uh, with with my mother. And so, it is an honor uh, and a privilege uh, to get to share God's word with you this morning. And so now as the holidays come to an end, as a time well spent in holiday cheer with family, drinking hot cocoa, eating good food is coming to an end as we begin to go back to work and as our children return to school, we're reminded of one central truth. A truth that all people everywhere at all times can agree upon. Even in our polarized society, there is one thing that even Democrats and Republicans can nod their head in affirmation to. One undisputed truth that unbelievers and believers alike can affirm. An undeniable reality that the young and the seasoned know well. And it is this, that life is full of suffering. The human experience from beginning to end has troubled days. Trials that cause us to weep, suffering that leads us to despair, hardship that causes us to lose hope. This truth also begs another question. How should man respond to his suffering? Each and every person in the world has experienced some kind of tragedy or hardship to one degree or another. Some of you here today may be experiencing hardship and trial. Others of you will experience hardship and trial in the future. It is inevitable, I'm sorry to say. So how should a Christian respond? What is the appropriate way to deal with the suffering that we and our loved ones experience? How do we comfort those who are suffering with wisdom? What does our suffering say about our relationship with God? So this morning, we are going to look at, a, at the life of a man who is well acquainted with suffering, the man Job. In the book of Job, we will glean wisdom with regards to the reality of human suffering. And so if you will, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Job chapter 13, and we will begin in verse 1. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for uh, the Sabbath day, a day in which we get to rest not from you, but in you, the day in which you have appointed for us to gather, that we may lift our heart's affections and our mind's attention off of the things of this world and put them on you, the one in which we find our refuge, our strength, and our comfort, the one in which we place our hope in this life and in the next. We pray that as we look into your word this morning, your spirit would grant us wisdom as how we may respond to the sufferings that are inevitable in this fallen world. That you would grant us wisdom for the future that is uncertain to us but is known to you. Lord, we ask that you would be with us this morning and by your spirit grant us wisdom. And we ask all this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. And so beginning in verse 1, Job chapter 13, 
Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silence, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleading of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality towards him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxim and proverbs are ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence and I will speak. And let come upon me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. This is the word of the Lord. So the book of Job is a difficult one. Uh, for some obvious reasons, it, it has a prologue and an epilogue that are written in standard prose, which, put another way, it's just written in ordinary grammatical structure. However, the bulk of the book of Job is actually written in Hebrew poetry. And so, obviously, this could be difficult for us to understand who are uh, one not living uh, in B.C. days uh, and are not well acquainted with Hebrew poetry. So for us to get an appropriate understanding of this particular section of the book of Job, it is necessary for us to look at the book of Job overall. And so as stated, the book of Job opens up with a prologue. And we receive information that Job and his friends are not privy to. And so we see in chapters 1 and 2 that the sons of God gather. And this is a reference to the angels. And we also see that Satan comes as well. We see that Job is described as a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and turned away from evil. We see that Job has been blessed by God with great wealth and a great family. We know Job is not an Israelite because he's from the land of Uz, yet he clearly worships the God of Israel and offers sacrifices on behalf of his children. Satan is then allowed to test Job. And then he goes and strikes all of Job's possessions, including his children. And so messenger after messenger come to Job, telling him of the various calamities that have just befallen him. The oxen and the sheep and the camels are all either destroyed by fire or stolen by bandits. Job's servants are all slain at the hands of various thieves. And a natural disaster befalls the oldest son's home. The house collapses and all of Job's children are killed. And so imagine for a moment that you receive a phone call one day and the messenger tells you that all of your children have just died in a car accident. And then another phone call to inform you that you just lost your job, your means of providing for yourself. And then immediately after that, another phone call informing you that you have just lost your home, your place of dwelling. This is where Job finds himself in the beginning of Job chapter 3. And so naturally, Job is devastated. He tears his clothes, but then he does something interesting. 
he begins to worship God. And he declares, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job did not curse God, so Satan strikes him again. This time, his very flesh. And Job is afflicted with boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And if you don't know what a boil is, it is actually a, a pus-filled bump that is uh, very tender to the touch. And so now Job's very health has left him. And so then he sits in sackcloth and ashes and scrapes off the boils that he can. But to make matters worse, his wife then comes to him. And she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. The one person who should have been encouraging Job to hold fast in faith in God's love for him tells him to curse God and die. Job has truly hit rock bottom. Matters would further be exasperated by Job's friends who are less than helpful. And it is here that we find ourselves in Job 13, in the midst of a dialogue between Job and his friends. Job's friends are less than helpful indeed. In fact, they deal quite harshly with Job in their discourse with him. Thus, Job opens up this section in the beginning of chapter 13 by stating that he is in no need to be taught by them. He says, Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleading of my lips. Job here begins to respond to the accusations that his friends have levied against him. Eliphas, in chapter 4, begins his discourse with Job by stating, Remember, whoever perished being innocent, or who is cut off who is upright. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In this, Eliphas is calling Job's integrity into question. Job has maintained all the while that he is innocent and blameless before God. Eliphas, however, is arguing that no man has ever suffered from God while being innocent. Eliphas further articulates that God rescues the repentant. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Then his friend Bildad comes in in chapter 8 to defend the justice of God, or so he thinks. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. This kind of deed consequence scheme should sound quite familiar because it is a basic tenet of legalism. This idea that if I do God, if I do good, God will surely bless me. And if I do evil, well then God will punish me. This is the scheme that Job's friends are operating under. And again, could you imagine that you have just lost all of your children and one of your friends who's supposed to be there to comfort you 
again, to encourage you to trust in the goodness of God, tells you that your friends were, that your children were all killed because they sinned. This is Bildad's advice to Job. And then finally, Job's friend Zophar will enter. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish, you will be secure, and will not fear. Again, Job's friends are working under the assumption that Job is suffering so dearly, so deeply, so severely because Job has sinned. Job could not possibly be suffering under God's hand if he were innocent. This is the great wisdom that Job's friends bring to the situation. Is God just? Yes, absolutely. So then Job would not be suffering unless he had committed some sin, some unrepented sin that he had not spoken of to God nor to his friends. Job's children would not have perished unless they had committed some sin. And so this begs the question, how many of us in our culture have this type of mechanical thinking? Again, the deed consequence scheme that if only we just do what is right, then God will bless us. Again, this should sound somewhat familiar because it is a form of both legalism and the prosperity gospel. You do your part and God will do his. You don't do your part and then God will not do his. Job then retorts, however, by stating that he knows that God is just, that he knows that God is merciful toward the repentant, and that he is in no need of being instructed by them, but will take his case to God himself. Job's friends have been very unkind to Job. They enter into a temptation that is quite common in our current cultural climate as well. The temptation to magnify oneself and to vilify the brethren more than is necessary. So take heed, watch and pray that you do not imitate Job's friends when you offer your commentary on the brethren. That in your effort to plead the case of God, you do not falsely accuse the brethren. Job then turns his attention back to God. Job's friends have dealt severely with Job, then, yet Job is confident that though his friends have falsely condemned him, he will find comfort from Yahweh. Dear friends, what a comfort it ought to be in times of trouble that we can, in a moment, have the ear of God. Amen? When friends and family desert us, when we are falsely condemned and, con and accused, when they abandon us in times of trouble, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is near. That the same God who parted the Red Sea for the Israelites that they may pass on dry land, that the same God who protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, that the same God who shut the mouths of lions against Daniel is the same God that hears your prayers, is the same God that hears your pleas, is the same God who cares and loves you. What comfort this should bring to our hearts in time of trouble and 
despair. After this, Job turns back once more to engage his friends. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleading of my lips. Will you speak falsely to God, for God, and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality towards him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your, maxim, your maxims and proverbs are ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. And so not only have Job's friends falsely accused him, but they've made an even more grievous mistake. They have misrepresented God's dealings with man, assuming that misfortune only befalls those who do evil. This false doctrine leads them to the false conclusion concerning Job, thus proving themselves to be worthless physicians. They wrongly diagnosed the plight of Job and thus have wrongly applied the remedy to him. Job's friends came to him under the pretense of having wisdom, yet they proved themselves to be quite foolish. They were of no use to Job. They had no value nor wisdom in all their chatter. Job was none the better for having endured their long-winded speeches. Thus Job tells them to remain silent and listen to his words that they may profit from him. Once more, we must take heed that the words of Job, oh, that you would keep silent and must, once more, we must take heed to the words of Job, that you must keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Another thing that categorizes our current world certainly is being quick to speak and slow to listen. Yet even the fool is considered wise when he remains silent. It is far better, dear friends, to remain silent than to misrepresent Yahweh to the brethren. Whenever we perceive the ruin of one who is part of the people of God, we should be slow in declaring that God's just hand is upon him for doing this or that thing, for being a heretic or a wicked man. In the midst of Job's, in the midst of Job's friends claiming to plead the case of God, they actually do violence to God's character. The great wickedness of Job's friends lies in their uncharitable treatment of Job. It is speaking deceitfully, like Job's friends, to condemn a man uncharitably when you are so eager to acquit yourself and be absolved of your sins. Put another way, we should extend the same grace and mercy to our fellow man that we ourselves expect to receive from God. Job then calls upon them to consider themselves in light of the God that they have just presented to Job. Will they find favor with the God that they have presented? Further, he calls them to consider the majesty of the Lord. And while they stand in judgment over Job, have they considered how they could stand before God? Then Job changes his attention once more to the great hope that is, for every man that lives. Will not this majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes and your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. 
Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Here we see Job once more falling into despair. Again, Job is greatly afflicted. Job at this point has experienced more suffering than many people who have ever lived shall ever experience. He is not only ready to tear his clothes, which is an outward expression of inward sorrow, but to tear his own flesh and go on to death. Job is despairing so much that for him, it would be better to die than to continue to live. He would reiterate again in chapter 14 that he curses the very day that he was born and wished that it was blotted out from the history books. He is in immense sorrow. But even in the midst of this sorrow, there is hope. Though he slay me, I will still hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face, and this will be my salvation, that the godless will not come before him. In the midst of Job's immense sorrow and affliction, Job trusts in the Lord. Even though previously Job admits and acknowledges that all of his suffering is from God, yet he still trusts in the Lord. Dear friends, this is our hope as well. That even when God afflicts us, even when God presents himself as an enemy to us, we can trust that he is on our side. Those of us who profess faith in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ need not fear that God has our best interest at heart. Romans 8.28 tells us that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. This is both our confidence for this life and the life to come. Like Job, we can trust in the sovereignty of God, even when he afflicts us. Like Job, we may be perplexed. We may be confused, thinking to ourselves, what is God doing? Which, if you watch the news, that's an easy question to pop into one's mind. Have I not walked with integrity with God? Am I not a child of God? And also like Job, we must concede the reality that we are not God. As the Lord says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? In the midst of our grief and our suffering, let us not forget that we are finite. Let us not forget that we can learn many things and we still will not know it all. Let us not forget that even as our wisdom grows with age, we will never be all wise. That God alone possesses infinite knowledge and wisdom, glory and majesty, might and strength. But there is one man who suffered even more than Job. One man in history 
that Job was looking toward in the future. And that is the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Just as Job's friends could not comprehend why an innocent man would suffer, so too the people at the foot of the cross could not possibly believe that this man, Jesus, was in fact the Son of God because they were observing his sufferings. You see, the crucifixion in Roman culture was reserved for the most vile criminals. Notice that even Barabbas, with all of his troublemaking, was not sentenced to be crucified. And so the people who were witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus could not possibly think that this man could be a son of God. Look at how he is suffering. Look at the judgment and the justice that God has proclaimed against this man. This man cannot be the Messiah. But in fact, he is. And Jesus' sufferings are the very means by which men are saved. It is in this that we hope. That in the end, we as the people of God are victorious over sin, Satan, and death itself. Again, remember, friends, that the same God who clothed Adam and Eve when they disobeyed in the garden, the same God who promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and after Adam was killed by his own brother Cain, the same God granted another child to Adam and Eve to carry on the covenant promise. That the same God who called Abram out of the land of the Chaldeans and rescued him and promised him that he would be a father of many nations. That the same God who blessed Isaac and Jacob. That the same God who delivered Israel out of the land of Egypt. That the same God that rescued the nation of Israel out of captivity time and time again. That the same God who sent his son to be born in a manger and swaddling clothes, to live a perfect life, to die the death that we rightfully deserve and be raised on the third day. It is the same God who blessed the apostles in the book of Acts, granted them great power and suffering and deliverance. It is the same God who has been orchestrating history all the while. That is, is this God who we worship this morning? Has he not proven from the scriptures that he is trustworthy? Has he not proven that his plan for you will not fail? Can you think of times in your own life when you felt like you were drowning, your sorrows increased above your head, the tears from your eyes ran endlessly. Can you not see different times in your own life when God cared for you? When God delivered you? Then in the midst of the most cloudy days, the sun came up in the morning. Thus it leads the apostle Peter to declare, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, 
and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, of more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, this is where our ultimate hope lies. And much like Job, in the midst of our sufferings, we can trust in the sovereignty of God, that we will see brighter days, either in this life or the life to come, which is far longer than all the days that you'll ever enjoy in this life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we give thanks that even in the midst of living in a fallen world with its various trials and various sufferings that befall us, that you are a good God, that you love and that you care for us, that you are tested, tried, and true, that in every way you have proven that you love us, that your plans will not fail. Lord, we pray that as we continue to look forward to the rest of 2023, that we would remember that you are good, that we would remember when times are difficult, that you are trustworthy, that we'd set our eyes upon the inheritance to be revealed when your son returns, that we would be more heavenly minded, for surely eternity lasts longer than all the days that we can possibly have here on this earth. Lord, we give thanks to you for who you are and for what you have done by sending your son to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that was rightfully ours, and be raised again on the third day that we may be right, made right with you. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.